Welcome to another episode of Break Some Dishes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Verda Alexander, and my partner on the east side is John Strassner. We look to people upending the status quo, innovating on the edges, and looking at things differently so that we can tackle the many problems our planet and society face to ensure a livable future for our children. John will introduce our guest, but I have to say one thing about him. His passion is to ask questions, be curious, and that is my passion too. That's where we have to start. If we don't ask ourselves, how can we be doing this differently, then we will keep doing things in ways that maybe worked at one time, but are now just plain wrong and actually harm the planet. I read Bloomberg Green every morning. This morning, I read, if if we need some convincing here, that the historical burden of emissions is interesting. So this is metric tons between 1750 and 2018, total historical burden. The U.S., has doubled the historical burden of the second most burdensome country, which is China. U.S. has 300, almost 400 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide released between 1750 and 2018. China has about half that. This article was talking about India and it's grown, you know, it's becoming more modernized and a person in India uses two metric tons compared to a person in the U.S. using 16 metric tons. I mean, That is just plain wrong. Anyways, back to questions. Previous guests have asked on our podcast, can I package my computers in less cardboard or use cardboard made out of mushrooms? Would anyone notice if I didn't apply this toxic anti-stain coating to this task chair? Why do we need to use straws anyways? Can I make a carpet that actually absorbs carbon? Can we do something with all of these discarded fishing nets that just go to the bottom of the ocean and cause ghost fishing? These are just a few questions asked by our guests on the 10 previous episodes of Breaks and Dishes. If you are just now tuning in, be sure to listen to a few past episodes. And today we may just have the king of question asker. Oops, John, I'm starting to introduce our guest again. Maybe you better take over now. (laughs) Thanks, Verda. Wow, Verda. All over the damn place. And I need a roadmap to follow you sometimes. I know, I'm sorry. Where's Rand McNally when you need him? Beginning to sound like you, John. I know it. Knock it off. One is more than enough. All right. So listen, I always get uh, excited about the guests on our episode, Verda, just like you do. Today is no exception. And I usually follow the same path of discovery. It's usually curiosity followed by fascination and then a a dose of enlightenment, uh, which leads to some unbridled excitement and then love for my fellow man. And then finally, I face fear and terror that I have invited yet again another person to join us who is a lot smarter than I am. And Verda, I emphasize, as I did last time, I hang out with people that make me look smarter, not, not the other way around. Um, Very smart of you, John. I know it. I know it. But I've been breaking that rule on a consistent basis, which has me concerned uh, for my own intellectual welfare. Um, So regardless, uh, let's get to uh, today's guest. We are joined today by uh, these are labels that I have applied, by the way. So joined today by scholar, philosopher and entrepreneur. Scott Fulbright. Scott is a pretty amazing guy who confesses to having the curiosity of a two-year-old. 
Who doesn't, who doesn't love that? Who doesn't love the curiosity of material? I'll tell you who doesn't love it. Parents that have to listen to it all day long. However, um, he confesses to getting easily distracted by a constant flow of thoughts and questions. Scott is the CEO and founder of Living Inc. Living Inc., you can imagine what it is, but you can't truly imagine what this can do for us until you talk to Scott, which is what we're going to do today. Scott's company, Living Inc., actually makes ink out of algae. That doesn't really sound so hard to me, I have to admit. I mean, I imagine that you could take a handful of dried seaweed and rub it out on some paper and, and make a damn drawing or, or rub out your name. So where's the magic here, Scott, right? But think about, for a minute, making ink from algae, right? Where do we get about half of our oxygen from? Yeah, living algae. Right. So algae, which combined, this is a scientist in me coming out, which combines carbon dioxide and sunshine to grow, um, is a pretty amazing renewable resource for us. Um, Scott got his Ph.D. from Colorado State University in cell and molecular biology. I was uh, thinking about doing that myself, but got involved in uh, my college rugby team, which provided a bit of a distraction uh, away from <laughs> away from that major, um, which is where he met his partner. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself, however. So uh, we're going to break right out of this and start talking to Scott and learn a little bit more about this process of making ink from living algae. Verda, why in the hell didn't we think of this? Yeah, right. Hi, Scott. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. And thanks for that uh, wild uh, introduction that the best you've made anyone's made me sound ever. (laughs) (laughs) Flowery prose, flowery prose. I got to write those down. (laughs) John's well, for gonna, hire. John's for hire. He'll interview. <laughs> we're gonna Scott. We're gonna go into business making greeting cards with Living Ink. That's there what we, we need to do. <laughs> all right. So let's let's stick to curiosity here for a minute, since it seems like this is all our our fascination today. I love what you said on your on your in your TED talk. It was a great TED talk, by the way. If we allow our curiosity to thrive and use nature as a template, we will develop amazing innovations to overcome the sustainability challenges we face today. So tell us how curiosity has contributed to your journey. Yeah, you know, I think curiosity has played a major role in, um, you know, almost everything that I've done from, you know, even when I was a sailing instructor in college during summer, like I was curious how a sailboat moves and without a motor and energy. And so went down into sailing. And then, you know, when I was sailing, I got really curious about seeing kelp and the ocean and algae and animals. And that's why I studied marine biology. So I think that's one of the underlying things about me is that I always um, am, am thinking sometimes to a, a fault when I you know should be more focused um, thinking about things that that you know can make the world better or just things that are fun to think about so curiosity's played a major role in, in everything that I've done and what, what was the what was the the question? No, 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 no. <laughs> how about how about this where did where did curiosity and solving the planet's problems intersect for you like when did that happen? Yeah, you know, I, I think that when I was at uh, when I was studying my undergrad, studying marine biology, I uh, I got a job studying algae, but it was it wasn't for applications. It wasn't to save the world. It was actually to figure out why algae was growing so fast in Florida. 
So we have these algae blooms when there's nutrient runoff. And it was there that I realized, you know, driving back up to Michigan from Florida, that this is kind of a negative that there's algae growing so fast. It hurts tourism because no one wants to swim in, in algae. And I, you know, I kind of thought to myself, this is actually, let's turn a negative into a positive. Can, is there anything we can use algae for? You know, and I wasn't the first one to think that. There's been people in the past that have said algae is the fastest growing organism on earth. And then a few months later, uh, when I graduated, I got hired at a renewable energy company making biofuels from algae. And it was there that I kind of realized that I kind of thought of petroleum or oil as just fuel, right? We put it in our car, you know, and, and it was there. I was, it was actually in El Paso, Texas. And I remember sitting in my apartment thinking about like, well, what is everything made of? Like, what is oil? Like, what, like, you know, what can we make from oil? And I looked around my apartment. I'm like, it's everything almost. <laughs> you guys, metals. And I started to realize that like my toothbrush was plastic with plastic bristles and the toothpaste actually contained petroleum ingredients in it. And that was when there's this aha moment of every single thing around me is petroleum. And that's kind of when I, when I went on my quest, you know, when I walk around the grocery store, when I walk, when I drive around, I'm just thinking, what's everything made out of? And, you know, and like I said, sometimes that's, that's a flaw, but you know, it's, it's, it's fun when you start to think about where did it come from? When you put gas in your car, where did those molecules start from? whether it was 500 million years ago or where did it get extracted? And so that's kind of what I think about, you know, when I'm filling up my gas tank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's amazing that how much stuff is made from petroleum. We don't even realize it. I mean, there, and there's definitely a reason behind that, right? These yeah. fuel companies pushing stuff. And I, I hate seeing stuff that was better made, worked better before and doesn't. Plastic, Verda, you and I have talked about this. In fact, Verda, you may have brought it up first. Just the fact that with petroleum being so inexpensive, you know, are, are petroleum companies pushing for more plastic so that there's more of a need for petroleum, right? But 90% of all toxic materials is our petroleum based, which is, you know, I guess it blows my mind to think how bad petroleum is as a, as a fuel source, as a manufacturing ingredient, yet we're so comfortable with it that we don't bat an eyelash. Right. And so what kind of a reaction, Scott, do you get from, from algae, from people that are, are looking at algae um, as a, as a fuel source, is it scalable? And what pushed you in this alternate direction? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you make a good point on the petroleum side of things. I mean, some of those materials are really amazing materials, right? Like, you know, in terms of their performance or their longevity. And, you know, I just remember seeing, you know, a yogurt container washed up on the beach. And just, you know, I just remember thinking like, you eat yogurt in like five minutes, maybe 20 seconds. <laughs> if you're my, if you're my three-year-old yeah, and, yeah. and, and, you know, the, the material engineers in the sixties, seventies, eighties, they did a great job doing what they were supposed to do, which is like make material. That's like super robust. That does their job probably to a fault where it was, it's way, it, you know, we, we made it, we're, we're putting our yogurt in, a, in material that's going to last thousands of years that all came from petroleum that, you know, so, you know, to answer the question on algae, you know, I mean, I've got this one slide in one of my presentations that shows, an image of the tar sands up in Canada where they just completely like destroy forests, 
add solvents to the earth to, to extract this oil. So, I mean, completely annihilate the ecosystem to the point where you can't say, well, the trees will grow back. Like, it's, it's annihilated to extract this oil that's like actually not that abundant within the tar sands. And so I have this image that just shows, you know, acres and acres and acres of destroyed footage and, you know, or, or acreage. And then, you know, and then, you know, in that same slide, there's a picture of an algae farm, right? An algae farm is just, think of it as like a pond that has a paddle wheel that just kind of like gently moves the water along. And it's about 12 inches deep. And every single day, the algae divide by two or three or four. So you're just getting this exponential growth. It absorbs carbon dioxide from the air and it uses sunlight as its energy. So it's essentially solar power. So, you know, in my mind, showing this tar sand destruction going on in this like quiet algae farm, just moving water, you know, moving the algae around to me, it, it's just, it's, it's solar energy, but to make our materials, you know, not, not actual, you know, energy itself right now. So I think that people really like that idea. And in my mind, I, I, I don't love talking about negative things, but I think it's important for people to look at oil extraction and to see those images because, you know, it's not in our back, it's not in my backyard, but when I see those images, I just cannot believe we're doing that to this one planet that we have. Mm. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about living ink a little bit. So, and I'm trying to understand it because uh, you've said that 80% of ink, regular ink, carbon black ink, the ink that we use in our printers and every and screen printing and every day, 80% is petroleum based, right? And then 20% is the pigment, but I'm trying to understand you, your allergy with your allergy you're creating the pigment, right? So what are you replacing that 80% with, with your inks? Yeah. So, you know, 80, 80% is, um, we'll just call it, it's called like the carrier, right? So it carries the pigment. Binder. Uh, Exactly. And the 20% is the pigment. So, you know, I think we are, as far as I know, the only company in the world that actually is really focused on replacing the pigment with a bio-based pigment, all of that other pigment. So if you look around your home or your office right now, all the ink or paint that you see, like those pigments are either from organic minerals that were mined from the earth or most likely petroleum. So we're focused on that pigment side. To answer your question, we can put those pigments into a variety of different materials to make that full ink product. So like, so if we print on a box for e-commerce packaging, that's 70% of that ink is water. You know, about, you know, we'll say about 20% is pigment. And then there's a few additives that we're working on making fully, you know, bio-based to make a, a 100% bio-based ink. If we print a book or we print on like a hang tag for like clothing, those pigments are going into, it's an oil-based ink, but we're using vegetable oil. So linseed oil, soy oil. So, you know, with our offset ink, you know, what you print a book with, um, we're up to about 86% bio-renewable content, which is the highest in the market that I, that I know of. So, you know, really trying to push that upper limit. You know, there have been some some companies that have done a great job on, you know, making these bio-based materials like linseed, soil, soy protein, binders. Um, we're using some of those technologies. But again, we're focused on that pigment side of things to really increase, maximize that bio-based content. And so what you're making now is is 100% biodegradable? It's it's eight right now, like, you know, um, it's 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 above 85 percent bio based, meaning that all the materials in our ink or 85 percent of them are from bio based sources. 
Okay. So that plants, algae, okay. things like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I was really surprised when you mentioned that ink doesn't, doesn't biodegrade typical ink. And it would make sense if it's petroleum based, why would it? So when we throw away a piece of paper in a landfill, like what, what happens to the ink on that piece of paper? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of ink that still contains plastic-like materials. So, you know, it, it would act like any other plastic that would go into the, the landfill. And so, um, you know, that that's kind of what ends up happening. There's still a lot of research going, you know, into ink related to recyclability and compostability. You know, I mean, one of the things that we've kind of realized, and, you know, I just want to say from a high level of living ink, if you look around your office right now and you see any kind of plastic, rubber, like my, my iPhone case, which is this rubber material, like, that's all carbon black pigment in there. So what makes that black is all from petroleum, like the cap on my coffee mug. What we're doing at Living Ink is really trying to replace a lot of that carbon black. So even into rubbers and plastics and all these materials. So really thinking big about it, including inks, obviously, you know, but one of the things that, you know, there's, you know, in terms of sustainability, there's biodegradability, there's, there's a lot of different, there's water usage, there's nutrient usage, there's all these different things you can look at. You know, one of the things that we've grasped grasped onto with this black pigment that we're, we've been kind of scaling up is kind of carbon negative. And, you know, that's one of the things that, that we, from a climate change perspective, are really kind of, is becoming the number one priority at Living Inc., is making materials that are carbon negative mm. so that a company like Google doesn't need to go buy carbon credits, but ideally implement carbon negative materials into their supply chain. So that when they sell a computer or they sell, you know, whatever, there's carbon negative materials being there. So it's kind of, you know, that, that that's how I see climate change being mitigated is that there's carbon negative materials that people start to use at scale. So that's really become our number one focus, if that makes sense. Well, it, <laughs> oh, it does. But just explain to us again. I it, it helps me to hear it several times. We've been we've talked we've had different people. Explain embodied carbon, for example. So carbon negative, and some people use the word carbon positive, and some people use the word carbon negative. So explain that. Explain carbon negative to us. Yeah, car- carbon negative means that you are pulling out more carbon dioxide from the air and locking, keeping it locked up in a format where it's stable and it's going to stay there and not go back into the air. So you're you're pulling out more carbon dioxide than you're emitting during the processing. And so, you know, what allows us to do that from the algae side of things is that algae, you know, so we work with the algae supplier in California. They actually pump carbon dioxide into their algae farm, into their algae ponds, because the algae, like CO2, carbon dioxide is actually a nutrient for the algae to grow. So, again, it's kind of like this is, you know, carbon dioxide to us is a bad thing, too much of it, at least. For algae, it's a good thing. It needs it. So what they do is they actually pump emissions from industrial carbon dioxide plants into their algae pond, the algae actually absorb that carbon dioxide or turn it into their building blocks. That's what helps them kind of grow and turn into biomass. And so it's a, it's absorbing all the CO2. Then what we do here at Living Inc. is we put it into a form where it stays locked up, like, you know, where it's not going to go back into the atmosphere as gas. So, you know, the way, you know, the way that I've started to think about this in the last couple months is that it's almost like a carbon capture technology in the way that we, you know, when we have a huge palette of black pigment, that's just carbon that's been captured from the air that then we put in two different products. Yeah. Does that make and sense? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, you know, we, we just, we just talked to somebody that is, you know, they're, they're manufacturing a, a carbon 
negative chair. They're using carbon offsets, though. We're talking to a lot of people that are, well, what somebody the else. Said, tile? Yeah, a, a carbon, carbon capture and carpet tile. What about, let's talk about metrics for a minute, Scott. Are you able to calculate um, the carbon capture and share that so that somebody that's utilizing that ink can then apply that to their calculation of, of their carbon footprint? Yeah, we, we have done a life cycle analysis looking at carbon specifically with um, someone that does this in the algae space quite quite often. So yeah, we, we actually can, if we sell like, um, you know, like when you go to Home Depot, there's like the five gallon buckets, you know, that's typically how we sell ink. So we can basically sell a five gallon bucket of ink and basically say that you just saved, you know, over 20 pounds of petroleum from being extracted and used within ink. And then you also planted, you know, enough, or you also removed enough carbon dioxide equivalent to planting, I think it's about, you know, two, two trees or something like that. So we actually can kind of put a, you know, try to make it a a little digestible. You know, I'm a technical person. So then I start to ask, well, what size is the tree? How many years is it a lot? You know, so we try to make it as simple as possible, but also being transparent in in that, you know, and I think a lot of this comes back to every processing step that takes energy is using energy and that's emitting carbon. So for us at Living Inc., you know, we'll be doing kind of a 2.0 version of that life cycle analysis so that we start saying, you know, we've reduced using energy at this step, and, you know, really trying to maximize that carbon negative, you know, metric that we talk about. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the ink that you've developed that that actually it's it grows with exposure to sunlight. Oh, yeah. Which is amazing. And I, I you know, and back to in, in regards to the TED talk that you, you gave where you showed the video yeah. of this card that every day the card, the inscription changes or at least the sentence gets longer (laughs) the image exposes kind of like when we were kids and we had that that pen the secret spy pen where you right (laughs) yeah yeah we actually were using some of that invisible ink in that product in the way that like, you know, one of the challenges we had with that is that we, we kind of sold the, we had these like pens and paintbrushes that people could use. And the challenge is, is that when you um, when you're applying um, so basically what makes the algae grow is we're using living algae cells as the pigment. So we put it into a very basic ink formulation, but those algae cells are still alive. So they're actually, you know, they're actually, you know, as they grow, they're they're absorbing, you know, CO2 and carbon dioxide. So it, it's a really cool product. But one of the things we realized when we first did our, you know, the first trial run is we said, okay, you know, make make some art with this product. And then they, they started to make art and realize that you can't see where you're drawing because it's clear. It hasn't grown yet. So we actually had to put the, the, you know, the old school invisible ink that's pink at a certain pH so you could see where you're going. Then the pH would change, that would fade. And then over you know, days, the ink would start to grow and expose to either lamplight or, or sunlight. But yeah, I mean, that, that was a really fun product, a really fun technology that I think helped, you know, it really, it really talked about kind of that design meeting art meeting science where the 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 things that you can potentially do um i think it also was a good wake-up call for my co-founder and i to realize functionality in the marketplace and that like when we talk to brands they're like i want to use the same printer i want to use the same processes i want this to be a drop-in solution so we had a lot of interest there 
But, you know, what it made us realize is that for us to have an impact at large scale relating to sustainability, we had to make products that all of these printers and brands are used to using. So that's kind of why, you know, we are kind of attacking that pigment space that I don't think a lot of people are are focused in. But a lot of our inks that we use, I mean, all of our inks right now that we use, they work on any printer that that you have in your own town. So any any if you go to any printer that has a flexo flexo printer or offset printer, like they can dump our ink in their printer and it just works because we basically realize we have to make this as easy as possible. And that growing ink is so cool, but biology is is cool in its own way. But biology also has its mind of its you know mind of its own, right? Like <laughs> when it wants to grow fast, when it wants to go slow, like oh. it's not mechanical. It's not like a piece of wood that you chisel out. It's like this living organism that can do some crazy things like grow, you know, faster or not grow at all. Or, you know, so yeah, it's fun. <laughs> well, and, and I think what you, you know, what you have to do is what everybody in your position has to do. You're constantly educating, right. And, and breaking these barriers of, of what we're used to, like Vert and I talk about breaking dishes all the time. It's, that's what you're doing. You're you're breaking through these common conceptions and common levels of comfort and getting people to try something different. It's easier said than done, I think. You know, it, it also, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. And I mean, I uh, this was like four years ago. I was talking to like one of the largest companies in the world. I was talking to like their, you know, director of sustainability packaging. And I was, we didn't have a product yet. I was just kind of like, Hey, what kind of ink do you guys use? And is it, is it on your radar as a priority? Like just kind of doing a customer interview essentially. And they were like, well, can you just give me like a, you know, what is ink? And I'm like, Oh man, like it is education, right? This is someone that's in the packaging space. And so then I kind of gave my 101 ink and, you know, realized that what ends up happening in these supply chains is that there's a printer who buys ink and that printer just buys cheap ink and, and then I talk, when I talk to the brands who want to do sustainable things, they want to market it, they want to really do it. And they're like, I have no idea because there's this middleman kind of that gets to kind of play in that space. So um, I, I think you're spot on, which is that a lot of people haven't really thought about wh- what ink is, even if it's on their product. So um, it is an educational thing. And and um, it, that's kind of my daily task. <laughs> yeah. How is your is your ink competitive in terms of price? Yeah, some of the inks, like for screen printing and textile, we can get down to a price point um, that is that is quite competitive. Um, a lot of the packaging inks, um, you know, we're, we're a little bit more expensive. Um, you know, one of the things that's kind of fun to look at is that like we did um we did 10,000 prints for Patagonia at the end of last mm-hmm. year. And they did 10,000 prints and it used about five pounds of ink, which isn't that much at all. Right. So that's one of the kind of cool things about what we have is this ink goes a long way. So even if our ink is a little bit more expensive, you know, you, you end up paying $25 more and you still can print 10,000 units of the product. You know, that's not always the case when, you know, if it's, um, if it's not, you know, a small amount going on there. So in some ways that's, you know, we want to maximize our impact on sustainability, but we also want to tell a cool story about science, art, um, and then, you know, my take on this is that every single thing matters, right? When I brush my teeth in the morning, when I, you know, when I start to realize everything's patrolling, like someone's got to solve the toothpaste issue. Someone's got to solve the plastic toothbrush issue. Like, like everything needs to be solved at some point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And obviously we need to stop using so much stuff and. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff, yeah. Footprint here in America. 
the first pitch I ever gave about Living Ink, I said, you know, we're doing sustainable ink. And everyone's like, but who uses ink? I mean, that was like the first business pitch judge said, like, who uses ink? And we're like, look, we're like, look around the room. And they're like, who does it? <laughs> so it's just one of those things. I think it's, I think it's yeah. about, I think it's about 9 billion pounds of ink is produced around the world every year goes and everything. So yeah, it's just one of those things that it's in that curiosity thing, going back to the start, where if you look around the room and say, you know, how much of something do you use? Uh, you know, it ends up being more than at least I think. <laughs> what do you think it'll take to move the lever where everybody's using, everybody should be using this ink, obviously. Yeah. I mean, the way I look at it kind of from a, a commercialization side of things is in my mind, it's kind of like a little bit like dominoes. I think, you know, it really takes the early adopter brands to do it, to do it successfully, to communicate it successfully. Like, um, I have a friend of mine who actually he turns algae into foam for shoes. So like if you're wearing shoes, you might have a foam, uh, you know, at the very bottom of that. He takes algae, he turns it into foam. And, you know, I think they struggled to get into the market for years. And then there was one brand out of Europe that like had this great story and it was eco and there's the eco facts. And then it just this domino effect of every major shoe company in the world now has this, you know, and at least at least, you know, a couple skews of uh of an LG based shoe. So in my mind, it's kind of these early adapters that we're currently working with yeah. kind of like show that it's, it's doable because the thing is everyone wants to be second. No one wants to be first. Right. Right. <laughs> so right. Like, hey, Interesting. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Like, Hey, you know, Patagonia, go prove that this ink works on these printers and then it's black and that, you know, whatever. and then once we do that, then it's like, okay, now we'll use it. We're, we're you know, yeah. hey, we're, we're second. You know, I think that that's where these early adapters, a lot of this comes back to designers that are orchestrating these projects where they choose to use a sustainable material like our material. It might not drive our revenue, but it does make a huge impact of like, this is a doable solution and it's a solution worth using now, not, you know, in five years. There's a there's a really common misconception out there that we've been battling with for a long time, and that is if you have a sustainable solution, there is a sacrifice that you must make in performance, and there is a premium that you must be willing to pay for that sustainable story. And we're moving past that, right? We're moving past it. We're getting to the point where sustainable solutions perform every bit as well as standard solutions. And our, the aesthetics was also an issue. And now we've got things that are just as beautiful. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think that I was going to biofabricate conferences, you know, four or five years ago. And that was kind of like back then, like the initiative of that community was to say like, we have to make things that are usable, that perform the same, that are cost competitive, because it can't just be this, it's sustainable and there's a cool story there. So yeah, I totally, I totally agree that there's some really neat things coming online. I mean, I think part of, part of the challenge that we face is like, when I think of these huge chemical companies like BASF, and I'm like, how do they get, how do they get started? Like, how do these big companies like really get a grasp on these industries? And then I realized they're all started in like in 1890 when there was no, no industry and they were the first yeah. to do it. And then they just kind of built on their product portfolio. And next thing you know, they've got this like super tight global supply chain and distribution. And then, you know, there's companies like ours, which are still very small, trying to compete, you know, volume for volume price points and all these different performance. And so it's definitely a challenge, but those are our, our goals. And we've got a, a great partner here in Colorado called Eco Enclose, who kind of 
partnered with us where we, you know, when we, when we develop a new ink, we take it over there and we test it with them. And, you know, they've been really great, you know, to us. And they've also been great to say like, we got a high bar for your product. We don't want people to think that this is, it's less black or it doesn't print as well. Like we have to hit this bar and it has to be algae ink and sustainable. So I totally agree that that's the bar that we're, we're shooting for. Yeah. Now you guys were trying to create collaborations to get those dominoes to fall faster, right? One of them, can you talk about Tesla and the motorcycle? And that's well, not Tesla. I wish it was, I wish it was, I wish it was Tesla. Tarform. 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 Equally sexy. I, I have to cover for, t- I have to cover for Friday. Tarform. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. I'm like, uh, tell me more about our Tesla. Tesla. Uh, Tesla's next on the list, though, I'm sure. That motorcycle is pretty amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, Tarform is one of those, you know, I mean, you know, one, one of the things that I think we're doing in the, in the, the, the biomaterial space is that we're working with these early adopter brands that are really pushing the limit in their own industries, right? So Tarform reached out to us like over a year ago and said, let's start to work together on using your pigments and some, you know, bio resins to be kind of the shell of our electric motorcycle. And there's an art, there's a really nice article in the New York Times, and I think in Forbes this week that talks about tar form where they're using like pineapple scrap, algae, all these different biomaterials. And, you know, what I really like about what they're doing is that they're making it look really good. Sometimes my, my personal opinion is it's like, here's a sustainable shoe and they make it so it doesn't like look like a normal sh- It's like, it's kind of like, you know, whatever it's, it's like funky. It's funky in its own way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like like the old school electric cars were like, look at this electric car. I'm like, well, I don't want to drive that. Okay. Well, it doesn't make an impact then. Right. So Tarform has done a really nice job communicating their, their process, their product. It's a great looking product. And, you know, again, you know, that's kind of what we look for is working with brands that, you know, we don't know how to make plastics. We don't know how to make bio resins. We don't know how to do some of these things. What we realized is that it's enough of a project to turn algae into a really nice pigment that can be used in all of these different materials. So those those partnerships are, are our way, you know, to get into the marketplace and validate that the technology works for these. And then for like a tar form example, validate the market that someone thinks that that's cool or neat. <laughs> and so that's been that's been really, um, yeah, you know, very critical. LG pictures go a long ways, but an electric motorcycle, people go, that, that's kind of cool. <laughs> that's got legs. Yeah. That's got legs. Yeah. Hey, I know you said that we're, we're using liquid ink to screen print on textiles, but what about fabric dye? Yeah, are you looking into that? Yeah, so we have. A, we have if not, Verda and I are going to take that idea. Well, we can we can do it. You can run with it. <laughs> uh, we need all the help we can get. Um, you know, we we are working with a couple groups specifically out of Europe that are focused on doing dope dyeing with our product. So putting the pigments directly into the material that, that that then can be turned into anything from I think shirts to to blankets to scarves. And so so far, that's looked very successful. You know, that, the, the, you know, not to get into the technical details, but, you know, there's dyes and there's pigments, you know, dye is like what chemically bonds to a substrate. You know, what we have is more of a, a pigment that is kind of a solid chunk of material that lays on top or in something. So that's where dope dyeing typically uses a pigment. So we can kind of fit in there. So whenever I talk to partners, I'm like, hey, if you use carbon black material, we probably have a solution for you. Um, some of these dyeing techniques, like in my shirt here, it's probably more of a, a, a dye technology where the you know the dye is chemically sticking to the, the, the fiber. Yeah, interesting. So we talked to uh, actually our very first episode was was with a good friend of mine, Oliver Campbell, who's with Dell. 
and I don't know if you're familiar or not, but Dell is using a dye, not a dye, an ink mm-hmm. on their boxes that's made from carbon captured in India, yep. which I think is fascinating. And doesn't it take us into that rabbit hole where Dell's doing a great thing? They're capturing carbon, they're using it to make ink. But if you look at carbon black ink, is that so bad? Is that taking carbon and making ink with it too? I, I get really confused when I go down these rabbit holes of of what's better, taking a bad material and repurposing it so you keep it out of a landfill. Um, but you're still making something bad. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think it, there's, 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 there's so many different ways to look at it from the sustainability side, right? I mean, there's also safety, which is obviously the number one concern of everything. And, you know, there's some carbon blacks that have polyaromatic hydrocarbons called PHAs that actually are known to be cancer causing associated with carbon black. So, you know, there's, there's safety issues sometimes within petroleum based products like we've already covered. You know, as long as that material is shown to, to be safe and it's captured from an emission, you know, source in India. I think there's room for all these technologies, right? Like, you know, and it also depends on what your priorities are. And I you know I talk to brands every day and I'm like, you know, what are the priorities we're trying to accomplish? Are we trying to be 100% biodegradable? Are we trying to be carbon negative? Because, you know, I don't know of any solutions that are all of them. So, you know, it, let's say you're in a community where there's this particulate matter that's kind of harmful because it goes off into the air. Like, well, we should capture that in that community and use it for something that's good as long as it's safe. And I think that's where... I think a lot of work's been going on with brands to, to prioritize that because once they prioritize that, I can say, here's the products that we have, the different colors we have, the you know, and, and we can kind of help you tell that story um, or, or maybe we can't depending on what story they're trying to get. So in my mind, I think it's I think that's a really cool idea what Dell uh, you know, is, is using. And I think that um, I think there's room to capture waste material. Um, and use it for products. And I think that, you know, our my longer term view at Living Inc. is that people will say, you know, is this the future? And my answer is it, it has to be because we run out of petroleum at some point, you know, probably not in our lifetime. But, you know, when you think about the age of this earth, 200 years is not that long from now where you go, oh, we're out of petroleum. How do we make a cup? How do we make ink? How do we, you know, like, so at some point in time, oil becomes more expensive or we just run out of it. You know, my, our biggest whole you know thing is that when we look at, you know, our priorities, you know, carbon negative and climate change is that number one priority. And that's kind of why we're scaling up our process because algae is renewable and captures carbon dioxide. So as long as everyone picks, you know, their priority and can defend it, I think there's a room for a lot of different technologies and, and products in these spaces. Yeah. It, it is confusing. It definitely yeah. is. Yeah. It's it's great. We've talked about design a good bit here. And I did have a question, but I think we've you've an, probably answered it. But wondering if you had any more to say about the intersection of art, design, and science and what we can learn from from you all. Yeah. Well, you know, I would say that there I have a lot of ideas here, but I'll keep it, I'll keep it, try to keep it concise. You know, I think technical scientists are really good at what we do, which is develop technologies. I would say scientists as a whole, uh, in general, are very bad at communicating that or making it look good. (laughs) And what we found is that you can have a technology, if it doesn't get communicated in the right way or looked the right way, then people don't even notice it and use it and it makes no impact. And so I think that, you know, from my view, I've just really like massively enjoyed working with designers that make what we do look better than how we make it look, whether that's 
the product itself or technology description to, you know, websites or presentation. I mean, it just, it's like, let's make this a whole package where people can digest it and make a decision if they want to use the product or not. I think from like a designer standpoint too, I think that design or even just other industries, like we've had so many great conversations where we get so pigeonholed into our, our, you know, our little idea and what we're doing that someone will come to us from a different industry and say, Hey, have you ever tried this? And we're like, what is that? And they're like, Oh, this is how you like the first person that told me about screen printing was a designer that we were working with. He's like, I think you guys should try screen printing. I'm like, I don't think you understand what we do. It's not going to work, you know, whatever. And, uh, (laughs) and he's like, no, no, really like, you know, here, take my screen. Here's a squeegee. You just jam it through the screen. Just see if it works. And I remember that it was like, it was like 11 PM in the lab, like out of a movie, right? Like I take my algae, I mix it into a basic formulation. I put it in the screen and I take the squeegee and I, I roll it through and I pull up the screen. And it's just this like beautiful image. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. I like call them out. I'm like, it works. It works. You know? so, <laughs> so like, I just like, you know, hear the yeah, exactly. Like e- even with my negative attitude of like, I don't think it's going to work. He's like, just try it. I think it might, it's, it could be really cool. And you know, that's what's driving our business right now is screen printing on textiles. So you know, I think just getting, you know, sometimes like knowledge from you guys with your backgrounds and kind of perspective, you know, it's so basic to say, hey, Scott, you should just try this. And, you know, and I've become a lot more open minded to saying, yeah, let's give it a shot here because it's been proven to when people come with these ideas. It, it typically works. And so um, I think that those ideas um, that designers have are just critical because it makes it look good. And, it, you know, usually understands the real world. Like, hey, we're trying to make a real thing, here, like a real product, you know, science. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think yeah. I think the lesson here is we just have a lot to learn from each other, and collaboration is is great. Yeah, I'm a screen printer myself, actually. There you go. I'd love to get my hands on your algae. <laughs> Anytime. I'm uh, right after this. I'm going to go do some. We got a flash dryer. We're going to do some R and D. That was so inappropriate. <laughs> Scott, I'm sorry about I that. I wasn't a little babies, what? Keep your hands off of Scott's <laughs> yeah. algae plant. Uh, you know, I, I just want to say one other one other thing related to the science, right? Like, you know, the thing that I always go back to, like, whenever I'm like, how are we going to solve this problem? Like, you know, it's just crazy because you guys, you know, already on the show, you mentioned like mushroom packaging and, you know, and I, and I know Ecovative and what they're doing. And I just think that, like, when I think about the earth and I think about nature and science, like it has been changing for billions of years and it is the way it is for certain chemical or physical reasons. And I think that like, you know, when you think about algae, like there are millions and millions of strains of algae out there in the world that we don't even know yet. We don't even know the compounds that they can make, the molecules that they can make. So I think there's there's a lot of curiosity of like what's still out there in our ecosystem that we can use. And then also some like the mushroom material is such a great idea where it's like, you know, this stuff grows all over our forest and they just came up with an application that's like really smart and sleek uh, to do it. So I think that, you know, whenever I have issues, I always kind of look back at nature and say, what is, what are the tools that, you know, nature's developed over billions of years? Cause that that's probably better than what I'm going to go develop over the next several hours. <laughs> most likely. It's, it's outrageous because um, even though you're, you know, what we're talking about here is so advanced. I mean, it sounds like when somebody says that you've, you're making ink um, that now is carbon negative, that's capturing carbon from the air, that's non-toxic, that is going to actually biodegrade. But what you're doing is you're using algae. 
And so then it kind of brings you back. It's it's atavistic in a sense. And I think back, so to pitch an earlier episode, our last episode we did was we, uh, our guest was actually my nephew who's pursuing his PhD at Oxford studying green ammonia and how green ammonia, it, which has been around for a very, very long time, right? We've had ammonia during World War II. They actually used ammonia as a fuel source when Belgium was running short of petroleum, right? But then after the war, petroleum was available and cheap. So they, oh, why bother with this ammonia stuff? So he's working. So green ammonia is almost, it's almost like you're going back back to this scientific discovery office and you're going back and you're finding old stuff that we have known about and has been there just waiting to be rediscovered, right? The number one thing that I keep hearing with what's the number one thing you do to forward climate action is to get people to connect to nature. And it's and I think that that goes for how we innovate and how we progress in terms of these technologies. Yeah. Creating. And I think it's really fascinating that we're, I feel like we're turning this corner and really looking at how technology and nature intersect. Well, and we talk about biomimicry, we talk about biophilia. And I, I feel like this is all, there's a connection here, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I I agree with everything you guys said. I think you guys just summarized it uh, perfectly. I, I can't sum- summarize it any better than that. You know, sometimes people ask us, you know, why algae? There's all these things out there, you know, and, and one of the things that's so basic that I don't even think I realized, you know, I was using algae because that's what I was studying. That's what I knew. But when you when you look under the microscope at algae cells, they're just little tiny, very small spheres. And when you look at uh, a petroleum-based pigment, it's just a little tiny sphere made from petroleum sources, right? And so, you know, we all go to these really complex ideas of, you know, exactly um, what was just said about, you know, engineering the future of things, you know, whatever. And, you know, we're using algae because it's really small. <laughs> and, you know, that helps us do what we need to do. So, you know, even just from, even from when I tell scientists that they're like, it's that simple, like, because it's really small, you know, and that, that, that particle size makes a really big difference in how vibrant a color is or how jet black something is. And so, yeah, sometimes it's like, you know, a lot of it's like going back to the basics of nature, back yeah. to the basics of size and color and just, you know, really, really basic. I mean, some of it's complex, but you know, it's it, a, lot, a lot of the high level stuff is like, let's go back to the basics. Nature doesn't make anything that it can't handle and get rid of safely. Right. We, we, we do. Mm. And so decades ago we made plastic, we engineered. Oh no. Come back. Oh, no. Scott. <laughs> that was a perfect ending. Ah, let's give him a second. Well, we did give him a few minutes and we weren't able to reconnect. These technical glitches do happen, and we are learning every time we do this. Thanks for bearing with us. Anyway, we were just about to wrap it up with Scott, and his last point about solutions to the climate crisis is worth repeating. And that is that some solutions can be found in the smallest and simplest things. In many cases, keeping it simple, going back to nature or back to the basics, is all we need to do. Well, thanks again for tuning in to Break Some Dishes podcast. John and I look forward to many more episodes in this year of 2021. Please tune in often. Thank you, loyal listeners, and Happy New Year.